Again, what you saw there was John chapter 10, verses 1 through 21, dramatically played out in the Gospel of John video. Today's message is called The Good Shepherd. When I first got out of the active side of the military and went into the reserves, I had to go look for a job. Unfortunately, my military job at that time was being an infantryman, and that just doesn't translate very well into civilian culture. You know, most employers are not interested in people that know how to do recon, reconnoiter, uh, blow stuff up. You know, it's just, it doesn't translate very well into civilian culture. So I had to go find a different job. But the only jobs I could really find with my training were fast food or working at gas stations. I tried the fast food for a while, just didn't work out very well. I didn't like the management. So I ended up doing just the gas station kind of stuff. And the gas station that I found was a 7-Eleven on 52nd Street in Kenosha. This 7-Eleven had a very dubious reputation as being one of the two most robbed gas stations in Kenosha. It was on one of the busiest corners in the city, and for some reason people just chose that gas station to stick up all the time. And I also got to work the overnight shift, which was when all the robberies would happen. So one night I'm there, I'm going through the inventory and counting the cigarettes and all that kind of stuff that gas station employees have to do and I'm watching this guy pace back and forth in the between the gas pumps and he's looking at him and it looks like he's talking to the gas pump and then he like leans over and he like puts his nose down there he's just doing all these kind of weird different things and I'm, I'm just being kind of I guess entertained by this guy <laughs> just wondering what the heck he's doing out there I'm keeping an eye on him while I'm doing my inventories and all that kind of stuff and you know, people acting strangely in the city isn't anything really remarkable. You see all kinds of strange stuff when you live in a big city. And so he's just acting weird. And I'm kind of assuming he, maybe he's got some mental illness or he's on drugs or something. But eventually he makes his way into the gas station and comes up to the counter. And I'm like, okay, can I help you? He said, I need some money. I said, don't we all, man? <laughs> said, That's why I'm working here in the middle of the night. I need some money. I said, are you looking for a job application or, you know, what, how can I help you? He goes, no, I'm not looking for a job application. I need money. I said, well, sounds like you need a job then. A job gets you money, right? He said, I don't want a job. Just give me some money. I said, well, I can't give you money. I'll lose my job if I give you money. He goes, just give me the money in the register. I said, I can't give you the money in the register, I lose my job. I said, the only way I can give you the money in the register is if you are robbing me. Are you robbing me? And I'm starting to think, okay, this guy's a little weird, so I'm kind of slitting my hand up under the counter for the silent alarm. And he goes, he, goes, he said, no, I'm not robbing you, I just, I, just, I just need money. I just need money. I want you to give me the money. I said, well, I can't give you the money unless you're robbing me. He said, okay, well, what if I am robbing you? And he puts his hand kind of inside, he was wearing his flannel shirt that was open, reaches his hand inside his thing, inside of his uh, shirt there. And now I hit the silent alarm. So, because I think either way this guy is crazy, and I'm kind of have a decision to make. And I'm, I'm sitting there, I'm running this through my mind. I am 99% sure this guy does not have a actually anything to hurt me with. Company policy says that you're supposed to just hand over the money and let the police deal with it. You know, give them whatever they want, just get them out of the store and, and you know, get them on their way don't take any chances. My natural defensive instinct is just to grab the guy and put him on the ground and wait for the cops to get there. But then I stopped and I thought about it for a second. Do I really want to take that 1% chance to defend slushy machines? 
Do I really want to take and put my life on the line working for a company that barely knows I'm one of their employees, for an owner that doesn't even know my name, and put my life on the line to defend all of that? I mean, I'm not dying for the glory of 7-Eleven. And fortunately, the police were there like 30 seconds after I tripped the alarm. They pulled right in immediately. They got the guy. He didn't have a weapon. He didn't have anything on him. He was actually well-known to the police. He frequently escapes from his group home and, and just kind of went and bothers people. And they just took him back to the group home. And in John chapter 10, Jesus shows us the difference between a good shepherd and a hired hand. See, I was at this store I was just a hired hand. I am not going to put my life on the line to save the cash register. I'm not going to put my life on the line to save any of the merchandise. I'm going to give you what you want, and you can go ahead and run away with this. But Jesus goes and shows us the difference between the shepherd and the hired hand. And it has everything to do with the heart focus of the person who carries that title of shepherd. Today we call our spiritual shepherds pastors. Pastor is actually an Anglo-Saxon word that is transliterated from the Latin word of he who tends sheep in a grassland. And the Bible has a lot to say about how these spiritual shepherds are supposed to care for God's sheep. Jesus tells us that he is the good shepherd. He is the example. And that leads us to our first point of studying John chapter 10, 1 through 21. And we ask the question, well, what is a good shepherd? What makes a good pastor of a flock? A Christian ministry did a poll last year of the top 10 things that people want to see in their pastor. Number one was that he loves the congregation. He or she loves the congregation. The second thing was that they have effective preaching, that they are able to convey the word of God in a very meaningful way and apply it to our lives today. The third thing is that they have a strong character, that they practice what they preach and they try to live as Jesus lived. The fourth was a strong work ethic, that they're not lazy, that they're not just doing the bare minimum to get by. The fifth is that they are a leader. They cast vision. They're able to, to rally the church around a central point or a central goal and, and see that accomplished in their community. Number six is that they demonstrate healthy relationships within their family and relationships with, between the pastor and the congregation. Seven is that they are joyous, that they have the joy of the Lord, that they have an infectious personality, that when you look at them, they're not crabby all the time, they're not grumpy, their emotions aren't here and there and everything else, but they have a, a, a deep sense of abiding joy in, in their character and in, within their personality. Eight, that they do not yield to critics, that they are not like a ship on the ocean that just gets swept back and forth between people's opinions, that they have an opinion, they stick to it, but at the same time they're able to um, be teachable in, in their spirit. But they don't have, they don't have a lot of uh, yielding to critics and they don't take all that kind of stuff very seriously. Number nine is that they are transparent, that again, they live their lives according to what they preach. And number 10, that they model evangelism, that they tell people about Jesus. And it's not a bad list. In most part, those are all biblical ideals one should seek in a spiritual leader. Not only a spiritual leader, but that pretty much describes a Christian, isn't it? Or doesn't it? The Bible tells us the other side of the story, though, and what a hired hand looks like. 
And you have to go all the way back to Ezekiel to see that. In Ezekiel 34, it says that the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you shepherds of Israel who care only for yourself. Should not the shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with wool and slaughter from the choice animals. You do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally so that they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched and looked for them. The summary of this section of scripture in Ezekiel 34 is the person who is described as a hired hand in the Bible. And a hired hand is someone who calls themselves a shepherd, but in reality they're only in it to get something out of the flock. They are not in it to lay down their lives for the flock like Jesus did. The shepherds of ancient Israel that were being described here in Ezekiel 34 were more focused on what they got out of the church than serving the church the way that Jesus did. And one of the condemnations that God was giving to these men was the fact that they took all the good things from their flock, but they refused to tend the sheep who needed it most. I think it's still a great measure for us to use today. It's a measure that I try to hold myself accountable for, not just in my actions, but in my heart. Several years ago, I was at a conference for pastors, and we were challenged with this question from the speaker. He said, would you still be the pastor of your congregation if you received absolutely no financial benefit from it? or any type of, of, of side benefits from it? Yeah. He said, after all, people in the world, you know, outside the church, they volunteer for the Red Cross. They'll get sent to places like Haiti after a hurricane, where there's no water, there's no cooling, there's no nothing. And they'll go and rescue people, and they'll volunteer to do that. He said, people will volunteer for their various clubs. People will volunteer for, say, the Rod and Gun Club, go out in the woods and, and, and clean the woods to make sure that they have a nice area to be in. They volunteer for that. They, they don't get paid. Some people volunteer to be firefighters or paramedics. All the world can do, if I, what he was saying is that the world can do all of this and not receive financial compensation, then why can't the people who are called to the ministry do the same thing? And there was a lot of silence in that room, a lot of shifting, a lot of back and forth. And I admit right now that this might not be a good sermon point to bring up right before a board meeting. <laughs> and I'm not discounting that the Bible teaches about pastors being paid and paid well. The Bible does command us, and Paul commands us, that the church, commands the church that the elders who direct the affairs of the church are worthy of a double honor especially those whose lives are given to preaching and teaching. Saying that, the challenge that was leveled at us that day had to do with the attitude and example that Jesus gives to all spiritual leaders at all levels to lay down our lives for the church. 
It's not about what we can get out of the church. It's what we can give to the church just as Jesus has given to us. And that is the foundation of what makes a good shepherd. Someone who is willing to lay down their life for the church, but it is also the foundation of what makes a good Christian. Many of you are the only example of a Jesus-centered person that people will ever run into. And therefore, you may be their pastor. You may be the one that introduces them to Jesus. Some people complain about when they're at work, all they hear is cussing, all they hear is swearing, all they hear is dirty jokes and everything. But God may have you in that place to shine a light to allow those people to see who Jesus is. And even though they may mock you and they may criticize you and they may call you all kinds of names, Bible thumper, religious nut, all that kind of stuff, when the chips are down and they need somebody to talk to, guess who they come to? They'll come to their pastor in that workplace, even if they never acknowledge you that way. Think about that for a moment. Psalm 23 is the best Old Testament scripture that shows the loving care of a shepherd as he leads the sheep. A good shepherd will make them lie down in green pastures, reminds them of God's protection. He leads them beside the still waters and speaks God's peace and his truth from the scripture into them. He restores their soul and he leads them in paths of righteousness that they may be able to walk before God without guilt and without feeling condemnation. He'll anoint their head with oil, speaking toward the healing the wounds that life gives them. For example, sheep would often wander around as they look to the next blade of grass. It's just what sheep do. And they would wander into bramble, these, these vines with thorns in it, and they would get all scraped up. And the shepherd would take each one of these sheep at night, and he would take oil, and anoint them with it, and they would rub it into their fur and and treat their skin to keep them from getting infections and keep the flies from getting in there and and spreading disease and all that. That's what a, a good pastor should do to be able to be available to people to talk about those kinds of things in life and be encouraged. That's what a good pastor looks like. But Jesus didn't leave it there. He also talked about the actions of the sheep. So what makes a good sheep? This week I watched a video that a friend of mine posted on Facebook of recruit privates being bussed into something called reception station. Reception station is the first step of basic training. It's where they get you in, get your paperwork going, give you all your shots and everything. And when you're done with that, it usually takes four or five days, you're sent to your basic training platoon. But you are met by the drill sergeants in reception station. And you see them on the bus, they're all nervous, they're all joking, they're all being loud and everything until they, they came right up into that quadrant, that quad, that large area of concrete um, around the uh, reception station, and they see the men all standing at parade rest with the big brown Smokey the Bear hats, looking all stern. And as soon as that bus got into park, all the senior drill instructors bore, get on that bus and begin to bark orders. And they gave really easy orders. You have two minutes to get off this bus. You will have your orders in your left hand, all your paperwork, and you will have your belongings in your right hand. Make lines out there. Get off my bus right now. That was a simple order. About half of them got it wrong. They either took too long, they had their hands 
or everything switched around. They were dropping papers all over the place because they were nervous. And they got, they got introduced to the Army's, um, the Army's way of showing motivation. The push-up. Imagine if God did that to us every time we messed up an order. Just think of how in shape we'd be. I'd have a chest the size of Arnold Schwarzenegger's if that was the case. That's the first lesson a soldier gets, though, is how to listen. And the next is to respect authority. And why is that so important? Because in battle, when the explosions are going on and the rifles are sounding off, an incoming fire is hitting to your left and to your right and behind you, your buddy falls to your left and you hear screams on your right, that one order from the sergeant might be the thing that saves you and the rest of the platoon. You have to learn to listen. You have to learn to obey. You see, sheep also need to heed their shepherd. Sheep aren't the brightest animals in the barnyard. I don't know if you've ever raised sheep or been around sheep. I've I talked to people at the hospital who raise sheep on a farm. They'll tell you they spend their entire lives looking down at blades of grass. They don't know what else is going on around them. They could have a cougar standing next to them, walking alongside them. They don't even notice because they are so focused on eating that next, that next blade of grass. Matter of fact, one of them showed me a video of a sheep literally walking off the edge of a cliff because the, the grass went to the edge of the cliff. And they just kept walking and boom, 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 down they went. The Bible compares us to sheep. And some of you might be offended by that, but think about the society that we live in today. I was watching people in the hospital um, coming in the front door as I was eating my lunch last week. And I watched a woman come in, and she's on her phone. She's just walking. She's like this, boom, right into a pillar. Literally walked right into a pillar. She stepped back. She's like, Crash, crash into somebody trying to carry their lunch back up to their workstation. Just the same thing. We're, we are so much just like a sheep in today's culture that it's almost comical to watch. But that's why God gives us shepherds. They live to protect the sheep and make sure that no harm comes to them. But the only way that works is when the sheep trust the shepherd enough to listen to them and to heed them. The second way to be a good sheep is that the sheep enters through the gate. A sheep enters through the gate. In the section of John chapter 10, Jesus clearly describes himself as the gate for the sheep. One of the main reasons that we have all the conflict in our lives, especially spiritually, is when people try to do things that God has not called them to do or, be, or assume a position that God has not given them. It's a reason for the conflict in most families. Teenagers try to be the parent. Anybody who's raised kids, you know how big of a conflict that can be. I was uh, working with a woman yesterday on the ambulance uh, for a short time, and she said, yep, I have a three-year-old going on 19. She's, she thinks she runs the family, and, and that's just the way that it happens in the families, and that causes a lot of conflict. Wives do this and try to steal authority away from their husbands. Someone outside the marriage tries to come and wiggle their way in between a husband and a wife. And all this has to do with going to an outside place of authority other than what Jesus has put into place. In the life of the church and in the life of the Christian, everything is supposed to go through our gate. 
Everything is supposed to go through Jesus and his word. Everything is supposed to be compared to the word of God. And if it doesn't say to do that, we shun it. We walk away from it. Everything has to go through Jesus and then down through his authority structures that he has set up. And I know the word authority is something that automatically causes many of us to bridle. It's not a popular subject in today's culture or even today's church. It's bad enough that humanity is by itself naturally rebellious because of the fall of man. It's even worse that in American culture we celebrate rebellion. America itself was born in rebellion and it permeates through everything that we do today. And unfortunately it comes into our spiritual lives. But let me just remind you of what Paul says about authority in Romans 13. Paul tells us, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. Now listen carefully to this part. For there is no authority except which God has established. No authority. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God himself has instituted. And those who do will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear from the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment to the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. Now, true biblical authority is not meant to be something that is oppressive. It is not meant to be something that is burdensome to us. But it's to give us the maximum amount of freedom and joy that we can have in this life while still existing within the the confines and the protection of God. That's why when we talk about the United States being a free country, we also have to speak about it being a nation of laws. Because you can't have true freedom without protective boundaries. And we call those protective boundaries the law. Anarchy is, with, is no law. And then the law of the jungle applies. The strong rule the weak. The strong oppress the weak. And, we don't, and it doesn't turn out too well for those who are weak, does it? Invariably, the question comes up when we read this verse about what will we do when the authority is bad? I mean, shouldn't we as good Christians be concerned about living those living under like an oppressive government or tyrannical leadership? Well, one, no matter what the media tells you today, we don't live in that kind of country. Before we grab the pitchforks and, and torches to rebel or, or throw things or protest, consider the history of one man from the Bible. His name was Joseph. Joseph served as a second in command of Egypt. The person who was first in command was named Pharaoh. Pharaoh was not a godly man. In fact, he was such an egotistical tyrant that he commanded he be worshipped as God. We are far from that in in these United States. If you and I were living in ancient Egypt right now, and Pharaoh walked in and decided he didn't like the color of your hair, he could just have your head cut off. No reason. Just because that's just what he willed that day. 
That's a pretty oppressive regime when you think about it. But did Joseph, Joseph go and lead a rebellion against this crazy tyrant? No. He submitted to him. So I would just put before you that maybe we should think about practicing submission to authority before we scream and protest. What would happen today if the same people committing acts of violence just to be heard or just to get on the news would kneel and pray for those in authority? What would happen if the church would quit using a political method to bring spiritual change? The very thing that's killing the church's influence today. What would happen if we were so kingdom-focused that none of these things would cause us any fear or any concern because we would see the, and be concerned about the kingdom of God going forth instead of our personal comfort and who we elect in an election? That's the key to victory. But it means that we also have to, as a good sheep, refuse to acknowledge anything but the shepherd. And 100% of the church's problems and 100% of our problems today are because people refuse to acknowledge the shepherd of the sheep. We in the 21st century church will do backflips and all kinds of spiritual exercises or non-spiritual exercises to avoid actually humbling ourselves and praying and seeking his face and turning from our wicked ways. And that's what leads to the spiritual, mental, and physical exhaustion that so many Christians face today. And I'm not just pointing the finger at you. I'm, I point it equally as me. I, I've been in a funk these last few weeks since Pastor Ron died. and It was because I wasn't taking care of myself. I wasn't doing my own personal spiritual disciplines. I was doing everything I could to keep my mind occupied, but at the same time just getting more and more tired and more and more frustrated and, and reaching a point of just hitting a wall with exhaustion. And it finally culminated on Friday morning at 1.30 in the morning. And I couldn't sleep, and so I woke up, and I went and sat in my office, and I spent time with God. God just does that to me. He'll, he'll wake me up at all hours of the night when he's, he's just like, well, you wouldn't, wait, you wouldn't listen to me at 3 p.m., so I'm going to wake you up at 3 a.m. If that's the time I need to get a hold of you, I'm going to get a hold of you. And so that's just the time that I guess he gets past my stubborn Norwegian-German ways and actually gets me to quiet down and rest in him and seek Him the way I'm supposed to. And I have a feeling that I'm probably not the only one that gets through periods like this in life. Maybe you're feeling like you're living in that fog of despair, or in a pit that you can't see your way out of. But let me give you a truth from God's Word that He reminded me of this week. And it's found in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15. If you ever wanted to get a tattoo, this is something you probably should tattoo to yourself. It says that, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, the Holy One of Israel. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength, but you would have none of it. That's the key, isn't it? The key to us living a victorious life and being happy sheep in God's pasture. It has to do with simply remembering who our shepherd is. But we have to be willing to listen, be willing to enter through His gate and His ways. And we have to be willing to remember Him and everything. 
Why do you think this matters? Because there's a wolf out there. The Bible doesn't shy away from the fact that you and I have an enemy. This enemy is called very, uh, very diverse and, and different things in scriptures. He's called the deceiver, the father of lies. He's called a roaring lion. He's called Beelzebub, the lord of flies. One of my favorite names for him because what do flies hang around? Piles of stuff on the ground that stink. We don't talk about him much in this church and rightfully so because Jesus should be our focus as a Christian and as a church. For if our worship of the king is pure then we have nothing to worry about when it comes to our enemy. But that's the ideal. Most of us live though in a real world where ideals are sometimes not applied in ideal circumstances. But the fact that there is a wolf out there is not meant to create fear within us. We're not to shake in fear before the devil. The wolf is meant to do is to bring us close to our shepherd, Jesus. This staff back here symbolizes the ministry of the shepherd. It is not just for corralling sheep. It is not just for leading sheep. I've showed this before, but if you missed it last time, shepherds would use this staff to give gentle taps to the sheep to get them to go where they wanted to go. Occasionally, the sheep would kick back at the shepherd. This end of the staff had a small point in it called a gold. You thought When the Bible talks about kicking against the golds, this was the gold. So instead of the tap, they got the gold. Hey, you don't kick at me, I'm the shepherd. Sometimes those same sheep would just want to go on their own way. A, a wolf could lay down on the ground like this, mouth wide open, sheep would walk right into it. Or sheep would walk too close to the edge of a cliff and ignore those taps, ignore the gold, and they're ready to walk off the cliff. The shepherd could grab that sheep right around the neck and toss it back into the pile with the hook. But the staff in the hands of a shepherd was used for one other thing. And that was to beat the wolf to death that came around. Shepherds, you see martial artists twirling these things around, shepherds would make them look like amateurs. They, you remember David would beat back a bear, beat back wolves, beat back lions. He would beat animals to death that were trying to hurt the sheep. And that is the job of a good shepherd. At our old church in the prayer room, we had a quote, and it's become one of my favorite quotes, and it was Pastor Ron's favorite quote, that the fear of the devil is lost in the wonder of the Lord. If we can be so focused on God's goodness, if we can be so focused on what he has done for us, we wouldn't have to fear the devil at all. Fear is the enemy's tool. Fear wants to keep you off or keep you from looking toward God. Fear is an acronym. stands for false evidence appearing real. Everything that the devil is telling you is a, is a mist. It's a, it's, a, it's a mirage. It doesn't actually exist, but he'll point it before your eyes and act like that's the only thing you need to focus on. Jesus says no. It's, it, it's false. It's, 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 it's a mist. The fear of the devil is lost in the wonder of the Lord. But if that's you today... I would encourage you to look to the shepherd of your soul and be comforted that he is faithful 
to bring you through the valleys of this life and into the glory of his home in heaven someday.